Chapter 7 Summation of the Life of Our Spirit Authentically Christian life means living in spirit and in truth, John 4.23, and so is practicable anywhere, at any time, in any historical epoch. Christ's divine commandments are absolute in character. There are no circumstances in all the world, nor could there ever be any, which might make it quite impossible to observe these commandments. As divine spirit and truth, Christian life, of course, in its eternal essence, transcends all mundane forms. But since in this world man is tabula rasa, called upon to grow, wax, strong in the spirit, be filled with wisdom, Luke 2.40, so the necessity arises for cadres of some sort, of disciplines to coordinate life in common and educate far from perfect human beings. Our fathers, the apostles, and indeed Christ himself, who trained us to venerate the true God, knew very well on the one hand that the life of the divine spirit surpasses all worldly institutions, and on the other that this very spirit creates a habitation for himself, possessing within the confines of the earth certain contours which express the spirit and are the vessel for the preserving of his gifts. This wondrous dwelling place of the Holy Spirit is the church, which down the centuries, also turbulent, has borne the precious treasure of divinely revealed truth. Let us leave aside those who, lacking in wisdom, become immoderate adherents of outward forms, and consequently are diverted from the spiritual quintessence contained in them. The Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all beholding the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory. 2 Corinthians 3, 6, verses 7, and verses 17 to 18. The church is appointed to lead her children into the sphere of divine being. She is the spiritual center of our world, the focus of the whole history of mankind, from the creation of the first to the last man to be born of a woman. The church is the bond of Christ's love by virtue of her indissoluble unity with him. Those who have matured in her bosom through long ascetic struggle to keep the gospel commandments and find the liberty of sons of God are no longer bound by any geographical situation or local tradition. Established conventions neither hamper nor harm them. There is the example of Christ himself who observed the commandment of the Father without contravening the grievous burdens of the law of Moses, Luke eleven forty six. Time and again have I interrupted my task, dissatisfied with what I had written. I tried to find the reason for my lack of success, and now perhaps I begin to understand. I had set myself an impossible task, to put into a book all that I had gone through during the decades of my hell of repentance. Obviously, I am no writer. When I looked back on those events in my spiritual life that clung most in my memory, I was not seldom brought up short by the nature of my experience. I think this must be not only my own case, but that of all other ascetics and writers in the long and not so long ago past. Each recurrence over a sometimes protracted period of what was essentially the same phenomena almost every time followed a different ritual or varied in composition and detail. Fresh elements would appear in my state. Previous ones would no longer be there. Diversities would arise impossible to write about in a book, which ipso facto 
requires methodical organization of all the material. Looking through my first drafts for a more extensive treatise, time after time I noticed that a single page would be a columnum of diverse themes. Some of them could have fitted equally well into various other chapters, such as on repentance, concerning prayer, contemplation, light, persona, et al. If I had written down each idea on a separate sheet of paper, I could almost have manipulated them like a pack of cards, shuffling them into different combinations. One and the same thought could apply to a dozen closely related problems. Do not think that I exaggerate. The life of the spirit is like living water, sometimes just a small brook, at others a broad river, or confluence of rivers, or it can be a vast sea. Now there is the music of a stream bubbling over stones. Now the continually vibrating but steady flow of a mighty river. There is the swirl of waters where two mountain torrents converge in a rush, or the smooth surface of water reflecting the sun and blue sky. Now storms rage over vast stretches of deep sea, to be followed by a majestic calm in the silence of moonlit night. And through it all the water remains the same. In contact with God, man's spirit can always apprehend new outpourings of another being, another cognition. He reaches frontiers of time, moves into other dimensions with the help of the divine spirit, embraces the terrestrial world, cosmic being, the ages of ages, touches on the unoriginate in his prayerful upsurge to the unoriginate. I do not know of an experience that might serve as a sum total of all others, especially where initial and intermediate states are in question. Even if for a moment or two our spirit approaches perfection of vision and light, the perfection is still only relative and in our earthly career does not continue fixed. In short, the extraordinary opulence of bestowments from on high cannot be depicted chronologically in due sequence, and I abandon the attempt. St. Siloan's method is to place us before the general principle and then leave us to work out and diagnose our own case. To give a few examples, quote, one should eat only so much as allows prayer and the feeling of the divine presence to continue uninterrupted after taking food and better defer each and any undertaking on which the soul is not prepared to solicit God's blessing, abandon any project which cannot be prefaced by untroubled prayer. And if prayer is interrupted by some alien thought, then that prayer is not pure. And where hostility, rancor, persists in the heart, our salvation is not assured. And if we do not love our enemies, we are still in the embrace of death and have not come to know God as he ought to be known, and so on. I have decided to continue with my writing and make fewer demands on myself, propounding my 50 or more years of experience of fragmentary manifestations relative to the basic tenets of our faith as I see them. The God of love is trinity consubstantial and undivided. Absolute being is personal, and our relations with the personal God are likewise first and foremost personal. Sin is always an offense against or digression from the Father's love. Only repentance can restore the purity and unfading immutability of our union of love with God. 
Apart from Christ and without the light of the Holy Spirit, no one can ever arrive at a comprehension, comprehensive vision of sin. The way to the Father of all that exists is Christ, and our adoption of sons is only and solely through him and in him as the only begotten Son, co-eternal with the Father and the Spirit. Weeping with our whole being is the normal state where there is true repentance. The more shattering our fear of being eternally cut off from God, the more we are appalled by our ugliness, the more total the striving of our spirit in prayer. The magnitude of the task ahead must in no way deter us from carrying it out. If we believe that Christ, the creator of our nature, is absolutely aware of our ultimate potentiality, we shall be inspired to ascetic struggle. According to Revelation, we are chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. The apostles and fathers recognize this, so why should we falter before such marvelous calling, compared with which all other concepts and aims pale? Furthermore, aside from this notion, everything collapses and life becomes foolish vanity. Christ revealed himself to us as man, the implementation of holy eternity in the bosom of the Father. We cannot refuse to follow after him. Of course, we are no sturdier than the apostles who were afraid as they followed the Lord going up to Jerusalem, where he would be judged and condemned to a shameful death. Mark 10.32 And we know that we are at war, but our one and only war which we elected for is the sacred battle with the common enemy of all people, of all mankind, against death. 1 Corinthians 15.16 In effect, man has no other enemy. Our fight is for resurrection, our own and each of our fellow men's. The Lord sent us forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Matthew 10.16 Of the spiritual states of the Christian, and more especially perhaps of the monk, the lowest is outer darkness, Matthew 8.12, and the loftiest, the kingdom of God come with power, Mark 9.1. Complacent narrow-mindedness prevents an enormous number of people from accepting real Christianity and even alienates them. But it is still possible in our time, too, to find ascetics striving for sanctity whose experience approaches the universal. They have suffered the agony of mental seesawing, tortures of conscience because of their depravity and iniquity before God, soul-destroying uncertainty and dolorous combat with the passions. They have known the torments of hell, the blackness of despair, the fetters of death-dealing despondency, the anguish that defies description and the distress of being forsaken by God. The ascetic who has sought and found true repentance will similarly be familiar with numerous categories of spiritual joy and peace, of inspired faith and healing hope. The fire of divine love touches the heart and mind of him who prays, and with it a vision of the unfading light of the city to come. Hebrews 13.14 Refined by fasting and prayer, the heart through grace becomes clairvoyant when the depths of fellow souls are revealed to it. Attention is not stayed on other aspects of intuition. Generally, to begin with, comes the grace of mindfulness of death. This is an especial state 
when eternity knocks at the heart living in the darkness of sin. Here, the divine spirit, still unrecognized, still unknown, and concealing itself, imparts to the spirit a vision difficult to explain of the outside world, the world, the whole of cosmic being, stamped from the very outset with a seal of corruption, where all is meaningless, engulfed in the shadow of death. The gospel word becomes intelligible to the experienced Christian. What used to seem contradictory is now revealed as divine universality, as sacred mystery, secret since the foundation of the world. The contrast between this new understanding and our preceding blindness is too vast to be explained in our words. The spirit arrives at two frontiers, of hell and the kingdom, between which the whole spiritual life of reasoning individual oscillates. When his spirit is contracted within, either from sheer exhaustion or because of the heavenly glory that has come to him, the Christian's prayer is like lightning, cutting from end to end through the universe in a single flash. Freed from the power of all that is ephemeral, the spirit is transported to the immutable world. Deathly suffering meets with unendurable bliss. Man cannot for long tolerate such extremes, which are according to only a few and only once. But the experience for a tiny instant reveals such spheres of being, which people generally never even suspect. Their hearts are closed to the holy life of God. The first step to success in the struggle against sin is to distance oneself from places or people and circumstances connected with our fall. To retire from the world, retreat into the desert, is a positive stage in this respect, since there in the desert many sins, violence, deception, calumny, covetousness, debauchery, intemperance, etc., are not feasible. Of course, this is far from enough. The attentive Christian feels the very presence in himself of passions as yet not yet overcome, because the thought of them may still intrude as servitude to iniquity and death. Moreover, there are many sins, such as pride, vanity, rancor, and the like, which may destroy us whether we implement them or not. Combating them can be a grievous business, even in the absolute solitude of the desert. The secret of victory lies in humility, likening us to the humble Lord. God is holy, and those who have found salvation in him are hallowed, Christian holiness means being free from the law of sin, Romans 8.2. The state of being free from the passions is distinguished by the constant presence within a man of the grace of the Holy Spirit, which bears witness that we have passed from death unto life, 1 John 3.14, incorruptible. Love is the indication of the divine Spirit's action in us, for God is love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. 1 John 4.16. This love is by its origin immortal. It cannot be diminished by suffering. Compassion is proper to it. Setting man outside death, this love is naturally all compassionate pity, even for enemies. It has no fear of them which kill the body, Matthew 10.28, but sorrows for them because they are without the light of true life. This is the understanding that our Holy Fathers teach us, and we accept and live it as true.
Born into this world, we are bound to it by the strong bonds of kinship. We love the world. Within its bounds, we fashion our eternity. But we suffer in it. It cramps the love commanded of us. We cannot fail to love it, but this does not mean walking its fallen ways. We cannot help loving the world, but when our attraction to it triumphs over our love for God, we must find the strength in ourselves to act like Abraham, take the fire in our hand and a knife, and offer in sacrifice all that we hold dear for the sake of the victory of divine love in us. Genesis 22.6 The Creator's blessing rests on this world wherever He is gratefully accepted. But even the blessed side of the world cannot be our ultimate goal. We languish here with a holy grief, drawn by the summons of the Celestial Father. We are aware that the part of ourselves that would hasten to Him itself becomes celestial. We know that God has summoned us to collaborate with Him in the act of creation by Him of immortal gods. We ourselves are created beings, but the Lord Jesus, by His appearance on earth, His teaching, His example, creates us like unto Himself. The coming into us of the Holy Spirit perfects in us the likeness of the only begotten Son. Thus do we too become sons of the highest. Luke one thirty five. And everything that Christ says of himself in his incarnation can apply to us also. The Son can do nothing of himself but what he seeth the Father do. For what things soever he doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. For the Father loveth the Son and showeth him all things that himself doeth. John chapter 5, verses 19 to 20. Man is twofold. On this earth, he at the same time transcends the natural world. In the lower forms of his material existence, he is a thing of this world, as such determined. As hypostasis, image of the hypostatic God, he is beyond definition. Hence our dual perception of ourselves, we are non-entities created from nothing, and yet we are of great consequence in the grace of salvation. Dependence cohabits within freedom in us. Decay with immortality. Servitude with lordship. In their fall, men fell victim to the fatal aberration of highly esteemed that which is abomination in the sight of God. Luke sixteen fifteen. They shun and despise that which is in the sight of God, the sight of God of great price, 1 Peter 3, 4. To be a Christian requires a fortitude that outdoes all other kinds of courage. The man, Christ Jesus, overcame the world, and he invites us to share in his eternal victory, 1 Timothy 2, 5, John sixteen thirty three. After his ascension as man, he sat on the right hand of God. We need to immense the, the immense strength of the faith of the disciples or the simplicity of a child to accept this vocation without hesitating. Quote, to him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father on his throne. He that hath ear, let him hear. Revelations 3, 21-22. And for whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world, and this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. 1 John 5, 4. Whoever tries to follow Christ 
whithersoever he goeth, Revelations 14.4, will inevitably be rent again and again at every rise from a lesser to a wider cognition, from a small measure of love to a greater. Our heart cannot contain his omnipotence. Our mind cannot grasp his infinitude. My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. Isaiah 55, 8. How often are we brought up short, incapable of understanding his will, his first and last thought for us. We do not easily abandon our ways, and with enormous difficulty search out his ways. The instant it seems to us that now I begin to see, he demonstrates how immeasurably distant he is. My soul is strained to the limits of her strength. My spirit fails. I am appalled at the endless profundities of the knowledge of God that stretch before me. I look for sustenance in the divine word, and what do I come on? Yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. Why? For the removing of those things that are shaken, as of things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Hebrews 12.26 O Lord, I am weak, thou knowest this. In fear I seek the way to thee, despise me not. Forsake me not in my fall. Draw near even unto me, whom of no account, yet I thirst after thee. Take up thine abode in me, and do thou thyself perform in me all that thou hast commanded of us. Make me thine for ever and ever, in love unshakable. Divine life is unimaginable for us, which is why we generally speak of divine mysteries. This, however, does not mean that the Lord deliberately conceals from us certain aspects of his eternal being. Of course not. As creatures created from nothing, and therefore only potentials, we are faced with the familiar process of maturing and becoming established in truth through gradual cognition of the mysteries. This is the way of it. Every gift of the Creator is pure gift, for we had nothing before coming into this world, and indeed our very existence we received from His hands. But assimilation of the talents, the gifts, entails painful effort of our whole being. Only when it is, so can God attribute the attainment to us, putting into our full possession for all eternity the life that proceeds from Him. His life becomes our life. The unoriginate absolute, God, revealed himself to us as personal being, and we are created as potential personae. Cognition of God by us created personae is a twofold act of giver and receiver. This cognition is always personal, never objective. We who are in the divine image bear within ourselves an insuperable urge to find the meaning of the self-existent divine being that is revealed to us. With the creation of man, the Lord acts no longer by himself, but always in concordance with his creature. The process of our perfecting requires two wills, the creator's and that of the created. Two personae, God and man. Cognition of the living God comes in the act of our uniting with him in his very being. Such an act of union 
emanates from mutual love that opens up the whole fullness of our heart, of our entire being. But if we only give God a part of our life, we must not expect him, the unoriginate, to manifest himself to us in all his plentitude and imprescriptibly, moreover, for all eternity. The Lord is inscrutably munificent, but he takes into account the measure of our surrender to him. In other words, he gives himself to us to the degree that we are ready of our free will to accept him. God so fuses with man that man lives with him as his only life, and not only in the least as an object of cognition. The scientific objectifying approach can in no way be applied to him. In the union between God and us, both he and we invariably remain personae, conscious of being linked by love. He says of himself, I live. He names himself, I am, and imparts to us exactly this life so that we too may say free, feelingly of ourselves, I am. He is self-existent, but we have our being from him insofar as we are in him so are we beyond death, that is, eternal. His name is Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, Revelation 1.8, the first and the last. He is the initial principle both of himself and of all that exists. Until he touches us with his finger, until his energy of eternal life traverses our heart, our mind, and even our body, we are lost in conjectures about him. As creatures, we cannot comprehend the possibility of existence in general. We register the fact, but can go no further. He revealed himself first to Moses on Sinai with the name I Am, but incomparably more potently through his appearance in this world in our flesh. And he gave us the blessing of knowing him as persona, and of seeing ourselves lifted to this form of being through faith in him, through meeting with him in truly existential union, through the coming of the Holy Spirit into our hearts. One of the most important events of my life was my encounter by God's good providence for me with St. Silouan. It was given to this humble man from on high to pray for the whole world as for himself. Predominantly, however, he sorrowed for those who had already passed over. His soul was riveted on the vision of hell beyond the bounds of this earth. He contemplated this hell by virtue of his experience of the reality of the spiritual state of the human spirit. He did not let time or space condition his prayer, for his spirit looked always on eternity. Personally, I was possessed by the vision of hell here in history. Life in the desert, far from releasing me from this torment, increased my suffering over the events of our age, most of all, the Second World War. The desert gave me freedom to devote myself to prayer for mankind, especially during the night. I was somehow obsessed by all the suffering in the world. My experience of the First World War and the ensuing revolution in Russia contributed to this. I had lived for years in the stifling atmosphere of the fratricidal hatred at first of conflict between nations, then civil war. Since that time, I would rather hear of maybe thousands of victims on earth, quakes, floods, epidemics, and so on, catastrophes, 
which normally ins inspire widespread compassion, whereas wars drag practically everyone into moral participation in the slaughter. There is no worse sin than war. In those years, I lived the liturgy, pondering on Christ's night in Gethsemane and the fearful day of Golgotha. I knew despair. I understood the enormity of the first fall of man. I cannot think how I survived. When Jesus had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the spirit. John 19.30 What was Christ aware of when he said, It is finished? No one has the power wholly to uncover the eternity wherein our Lord dwelt. But he would not be mistaken to suppose that his global vision included not only extreme self-emptying to the extent of descent into Hades, but the spectacle of his victory over death. He beheld the multitude of them whom he had saved in the light of the Father's kingdom. What the creative mind of God had designed for man before the foundation of the world is now possible and accomplished. The work which the Father had given to Christ to do he had finished. John 17.4 We are fearful, we are appalled, when we see the dreadful extent of the suffering that lies before us. But the peculiarity of the Christian way lies precisely in the fact that descent into the domain of torment may parallel the human spirit's ascent into the sphere of uncreated light. When we are seized by what seems to us unbearable anguish, suddenly the possibility of really measureless abundance of life opens out before us. Then it is that we begin to cognize Christ more deeply, both as man and as God. And our spirit rejoices, marveling at the miracle that God has performed with us. Just as the Gethsemane prayer continues eternal in its operative puissance, just as Christ's death at Golgotha has for all time seared the body of the created world, just as the Lord's deeds and words can never be effaced from the history of man, so will our labors to follow after Christ stay engraved in us for eternity, but transfigured by the power of divine love. To the faithful believer, states of being are accorded that liken him to the incarnate God. We do not speak of complete identity, but we do not deny an analogy. It would be folly to claim identicalness, profanity, and ingratitude to reject similitude. And if it were never given to anyone to live in prayer, be it only a faint likeness to the spiritual states of the God-man, how could people ever manage to recognize God in him? This is life eternal, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. John 17.3 The whole point of our arduous striving is to know the one true God. Our spirit is focused not on ephemeral phenomenon, but on eternal being. Our mind aspires to him who is the foundation of all that exists, the first and the last. And how could we ascribe such attributes to the historical Christ if following his commandments did not bring the fruits of which the fathers from generation to generation speak with such reverence and rapture, if he were as hidebound as we are? But the Son of God hath given us an understanding that we may know him that is true and may be in his Son, Jesus Christ. First John 5, 12, 20.
And St. Paul says that in us must be this mind, which also in Christ Jesus, Philippians 2.5. And again, Paul bows his knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, that he would grant us to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in our hearts, that we may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth, the length, and depth, and height, and to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that we might be filled with all the fullness of God. Ephesians 3.14-19 So then, if at the beginning of Christianity the Spirit put these words into the mouth and heart of St. Paul, the same Spirit, right up to this day, never ceases to move the hearts of the faithful to like prayer for the whole world, that every man may know through and through that the Lord calls each and all of us into his marvelous light. 1 Peter 2.9 Our mind does not take in what the salvation of the world signifies or what the rising from the dead should mean. Mark 9.10 But in prayer even we are given an inkling of the mystery of the next world. We believe that the moment will come to be called the fullness of times, Ephesians 1.10, as the completion of all that the Creator conceived for us. Eternity knows no duration, although it embraces the whole expanse of time and space. Only One can only call it an eternal instant, impossible to determine or assess, either in time, space, or logic. In this ineffable moment, even we, by the gift of the Holy Spirit, in a single brief, deathless act of our whole being, will embrace everything that ever was, and God will be all in all. 1 Corinthians 15:28. Reasonable man has to become perfect after the image of the triune divinity. This is the meaning, the purpose, and the task of Christ's church, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us. John seventeen twenty one. It is clear that every member of the church must come to the full fullness of likeness to Christ, even to identity. Otherwise, there will be no unity of the church in the image of the oneness of the Holy Trinity. Chapter 8 Concerning Spiritual Liberty Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Galatians 5.1 The start of our life in the body, formed of the dust of the ground, Genesis 2.7, provides us with experience of being dependent on the forces of nature, with which necessity and determinism are connected. It is only through Christ that we can know the kingdom of the liberty of the divine spirit, see 2 Corinthians 3.17, and then also of the human spirit. The human spirit, as the image of the spirit of the Lord, created by God in some searchless way, is engendered, as it were, in the material of our body, but by its essence stands above cosmic matter. Meeting with Christ causes it to grow in its hypostatic cognition to such maturity that it ceases to be dependent on the physical laws of the earth, and begins effectively to breathe the breath of divine eternity. The freedom of the man who believes in the divinity of Jesus Christ and who dwells in the sphere of his word belongs to a plane 
of other dimensions. It is a freedom in no way determined from without. Such a man approaching unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Ephesians 4.13 Although he is a creature created by God, the creator treats not as his energy, but as a def definite fact even for himself. God will never force anything from him, not even love for him as his father. He reveals himself as he is, leaving man free to react as he chooses. So the church avoids even divine, that is, originist determinism, whereby God of his goodness will, without infringing the principle of freedom, find a way for all men and all things to be saved. This liberty, experience of which is given to the Christian, belongs to the personal principle in man. The two persona and liberty are indissolubly related. Where there is no liberty, there is no persona, and vice versa. Without persona, there is no liberty. This kind of eternal being uniquely concerns the persona, in no way the individual. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 47 to 50. We are created by God in his image for life after his likeness, that is, for our ultimate divinization, for the communication to us of divine life in all its plentitude. Relations between God and man are based on the principles of freedom. Our final self-determination with reference to God depends on our own discretion. When in our liberty we opt for sin, we then sever the ties of love and withdraw from him. The possibility of negative self-determination in connection with our Heavenly Father constitutes the tragic aspect of liberty. But this fateful free will of ours is nevertheless an essential condition for the created persona in his progress towards the assumption of divine life. Yes, we are free, but not to the absolute degree in which God himself is free. He determines his own being in all things. We, however, created from nothing in ourselves have no life. We cannot produce any other sort of being which we might wish for in our wisdom or our folly. Before us is the fact of the primal self-existence of God, besides whom nothing self-existent can be. We are faced with the choice between the adoption of sons, Galatians 4.5, by our God and Father, or withdrawing from him into outer darkness, Matthew 22.13. There is no middle way. The Christian is called upon to have the temerity to believe that we can become possessed of divine being. It does not belong to us since we are creatures. We have not the power to originate this being. It can only be given to us as the pure gift of the Father's love. What am I talking of at this point? I am trying to find a kind of parallel in our everyday life that might explain what happens when the Lord comes to dwell in us. Man is born a blind, helpless infant. His weapon in his struggle for existence are tears, by which he expresses his discomfort, his hurt, whatever the reason for it. His parents, his mother especially, out of love for the child of her womb, hurries to his help. At the start of his life, the infant clings to his mother. Gradually, he learns to distinguish objects, pronounce words, begin to understand certain things, 
grow stronger and able to stand, walk, and run. Finally, he reaches maturity, physical, moral, intellectual. He can become a parent himself. He enters on an independent life. Everything experienced in infancy disappears from his memory. He knows who his father and mother were, but no longer feels dependent on them. He lives as if he had issued from no one. He is free in his activities and decisions. He senses himself as a complete individual entity. In short, I exist. How this has come about, I do not know, but the fact is utterly convincing for me myself. Only my reason knows that the life that my parents has had was given to me, became mine, flowed in my veins. So it is with us in relation to God. For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself. John 5.26 As the living Father hath sent me, and I live by the Father, so he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. John 6.57-58 Because I live, ye shall live also. John 14.19 When this immemorial life is communicated to us existentially, we feel it like our own life. We know from previous experience that this life is given to us by God. It is not ours by its nature, but given as their imprescriptible property to those who are saved. It does indeed become our life. One can speak of it in the words of St. Paul, And yet not I live, but Christ liveth in me. Galatians 2.20 Again, I repeat, I know that it is he who lives in me, but his life has become the kernel, the intrinsic kernel of my whole being, so that I can speak of it as my life. The Lord lives, and I too live. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me, and he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. And we will come unto him and make our abode with him. John fourteen twenty one and 23. Make their abode, of course, not temporarily, but for eternity. Our entry into possession of this immortal life is conditional upon the keeping of the Lord's commandments. If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. John eight thirty one to 32 The likeness of our nature to God generates a thirst in us to know the truth, to aspire to divine perfection. This perfection is not in us ourselves, but in the Father, the source of all that exists. Following him in all things is not in the least like being subjected to the dictates of some alien power. It is our love attracting us to him. We continually pine for his perfection. And Christ did give us the commandment, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Matthew 5.48 The sacred will of the Father, eternally existing in him, is not foreign to us, who are his image. It is kindred to our spirit, even though it surpasses our created nature. The superiority of the Father explains the necessity for our struggle to assimilate it. And we freely accept this ascetic striving, at one and the same time both agonizing and inspiring. Through prayer, strength from on high comes to us. The Holy Spirit, not our struggle, 
achieves in us what we seek and aspire to. We grieve painfully because we do not contain his fullness in ourselves, and we ache and suffer, but are blissful, too, in our suffering, and we revere him and bow down before him in our love. In its purest form, our prayer is nothing other than our spirit's rapture before him. Lord, teach us to pray, he said unto them. When you pray, say, Our Father, after this manner, therefore pray ye. Luke 11, 1-2 and Matthew 6, 9-13. Our Father, which art in the heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thou didst give my spirit to scent the fragrance of thy holiness. And now my soul thirsts to be holy in thee. Thy kingdom come. I pray thee, let me, who am poor and destitute, be filled with thy royal life, and may it be my life forever and ever. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven, in the earth of my created being. Let even me, a mortal, be included in the mighty stream of this light, as it is in thee thyself from the beginning. Give us this day our daily bread, and before all and after all, the true bread which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. John 6.32 And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive them that trespass against us. I beseech thee, send down on me, held fast in the bondage of corruption, the grace of the Holy Spirit to give me strength to forgive all things to all men, that nothing remain in me to hinder me from receiving thy forgiveness for my manifold sins. And lead us not into temptation. O thou to whom all hearts are open, who knowest my vileness, my disposition to sin, I pray thee, send thine angel with his sword drawn in his hand to stand in the way of my fall. Numbers 22.22 But deliver us from evil. O Holy Father, almighty and good, deliver me from the power of our enemy and thine adversary. To battle alone against him is beyond my strength. To begin with, we pray for ourselves. But when the Holy Spirit increases our understanding and broadens our knowledge, our prayer takes on cosmic dimensions. And invoking our Father by the, the word, our, we think of all mankind and implore grace for all men as earnestly as for ourselves. Hallowed be thy name. Amongst all peoples, Thy kingdom come into the souls of all men, that the light of the life that proceeds from thee may become the life of our whole world. Thy will be done, the one holy will that unites all in thy love, on the earth wherein we live as it reigns among the saints in heaven. Deliver us from evil, from the evil murderer, John 8:44, who sows Seed of enmity and death everywhere, Matthew thirteen twenty seven to 28. According to Christian understanding, evil, like good, is present only where there is personal form of being. Without this kind of life, there is no evil, but only determined natural processes. In connection with the problem of evil in general, and particularly in the human world, the question arises of God's participation in the historical destinies of peoples. Vast numbers of men reject belief in God because it seems to them that, if God existed, there could be no place for such savage evil everywhere, so much undeserved suffering 
such chaos and absurdity. They forget or simply do not know that the Creator cherishes our freedom as the basic principle in the creation of godlike beings. If God were to interfere every time men felt drawn to evil, it would be tantamount to depriving them of the possibility of self-determination, and the end result would be to reduce everything to cosmic impersonal laws. God, of course, saves both individual sufferers and whole peoples if they will set their feet on his paths call upon him for help. Not everyone holds the same conception of the meaning of the word salvation. For Christians waging unrelenting battle against sin, salvation signifies that God himself gives himself to man in the immensity of his eternity. Their whole lives may be marked by adversity, but inwardly they stand before the invisible. Any attempt to describe the state of such a Christian would be useless. He surrenders to the will of God, and in this self-abnegation resembles Christ. In its essence, this act is a free manifestation of canonic love, making man like God. Quote, the hours come, behold, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Mark fourteen forty one. There is no greater love than this. We give ourselves into the sacred care of our Creator and thereby enter into the fullness of divine life. Prayer is more important than any other activity, whether social or political, in the field of science or the arts. He who knows this by experience finds it easy to sacrifice material well-being for the sake of leisure to converse with God. It is a great privilege to be able to concentrate one's mind on the permanent, the intransitory, on the things that are superior to and reach higher than all the most outstanding achievements of science, philosophy, or social service. At first, the struggle for spiritual freedom may seem inordinately hard and risky, but all difficulties are overcome when prayer takes entire possession of the soul. Prayer of profound repentance may lead to a state in which we receive the experience of freedom in the spirit of truth and the truth shall make you free, John 8.32. Unfortunately, this holy freedom is unknown to the majority of people. The first symptom of liberation is an unwillingness to dominate. The next rung of the ladder is to unshackle oneself from the authority of others, not because one scorns powers ordained by God or the temporal rulers of the life of the community, but because fear of the Lord precludes trans trespassing against the commandments to love one's neighbor. God, without beginning, revealed himself to us in his ineffable humility. He, the creator of all that exists, does not rule over us. True, no one has power over him either. Man is the image of this humble and free God. It would be normal for us to strive to become like him in his form of being to avoid commanding others and ourselves to stand fast in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free. Galatians 5.1 When God's light enters the soul in prayer, it, become, it brings release from slavery to the passions and leads up into the luminous sphere of godlike freedom, which is all love and excludes all tendency to play the tyrant, which is the opposite of love. Where freedom and love are absent, nothing has any meaning. 
even gifts like the gift of prophecy, the understanding of all mysteries, and the strength to perform miracles lose their value in the absence of love. 1 Corinthians 13, 1-3 Great and marvelous is the world of spiritual liberty. Outside it, salvation, as the divinization of man, is impossible. It is essential that man should freely determine himself for eternity. Every creature strives to be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Romans 8.21-23 Nowadays, all over the world, fighting goes on for freedom and independence, but it is hard to find anyone to whom the mystery of godlike freedom of children of the Heavenly Father has been revealed. Words fail to describe the virtue of this state. It can only be known from by the gift from on high. Once again, I cannot help recalling the Apostle Paul, who undoubtedly knew this divinely royal liberty. The earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God, for the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly. Romans eight nineteen to 20 Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Galatians 5.1 It is easy to understand that the craving to dominate soon leads to loss of one's own independence, accompanied, and this is fearful, by retreat from the God of love and dispossession of the grace of the Holy Spirit. The despot prepares his own downfall into the void of non-existence. Likeness to the Lord of Lords precludes the subjugation of others in which there is no eternal or even temporal life. Domination is generally achieved by force and slaughter. Those who have not shown mercy will be judged at the last judgment on the principle, with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged, Matthew 7, 2. And again, he shall have judgment without mercy that hath showed no mercy, James two thirteen. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, 2 Corinthians 3.17. Liberty in its absolute form is peculiar only to God, but to man is given the blessing to know it partly in prayer conjoined with life according to the commandments. Prayer, a priceless gift from heaven, requires leisure. For the sake of an encounter with the living Christ, it is not too difficult to give up the pleasures that delight man and prefer converse with him to all else. This priceless privilege, I make bold to say, blessedness, was given to me most of all in the desert. The ascetic conception of the desert has nothing to do with geography. It is a form of life which means living remote from other people, where no one sees or hears you, or has power over you, and you do not rule over anyone else. This freedom is imperative if one's spirit, indeed one's whole being, is to be absorbed in the divine sphere. Then divine apathia, more precious than aught that the earth has to offer, may be communicated to us. There will be no more thought of dominating one's brother, no seeking after honor or renown, still less material riches. I do not understand why in the desert I was granted the blessing of this glorious liberty of the children of God. I cannot say that I absorbed this gift to its highest degree, when men verily outruns the power over him of sin and death. 
but at times I did approach the state which made me see the complete liberation comes when death is vanquished. He who is not afraid of death is on the way to freedom. In bondage man is held back if he is attached above all to earthly, earthly things. Behold, I and the children which God hath given me, for as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Hebrews 2, 13-15 I only partially experienced the rapture of spiritual liberty, losing it when I was ordained priest and confessor. Love not infrequently subjugates me to those whom the Lord has entrusted to me. Still, somewhere in the depths of my soul, there lingers a trace of what I knew in the past. The experience began in France, in a very vague form, when I felt an urgent need to withdraw from the world. I thanked God's providence for me that I was free to take this step, since there was no one in the whole wide universe whose life depended on me. In my thirst for God, I could afford any risk. Nothing held me back. I could face all and every difficulty. This was my soul's initial experience of imperial freedom. Christ, in the freedom of his love, surrendered himself to death thereby opening to us the road to consummate knowledge, to divine immortality. Chapter 9. Inspiration Although conscious of my extreme unworthiness, or perhaps precisely because of the anguish it caused me, for years on end I prayed that the Lord would grant me the inspiration to follow him whithersoever he goeth. Revelations 14.4 be it into the wilderness to test the fidelity of my love for the Father, or the torture of preaching the kingdom of the Father's love, whether to Mount Tabor, whether three, where three of the chosen disciples heard the Father's voice saying, This is my beloved Son, but first of all and most of all to Gethsemane and then Golgotha. Inspiration meant for me the presence of the power of the Holy Spirit within us. John 4, 13-15, and chapter 7, 37-39. This kind of inspiration belongs to a different plane of being from which that which the artist or philosopher knows, though his too can be seen as a gift from God. But it does not bring union with God himself or even intellectual knowledge of him. Truly holy inspiration proceeding from the Father on high does not impose itself. It must be obtained, like every other gift from God, by an urgent effort of prayer. Luke 11, 9-11 This does not signify that God gives some sort of reward for effort made, but that what one has acquired through cognizant suffering becomes an inalienable possession for eternity. It is imperative for every one of us to be totally reborn by the action of grace, that the ability to apprehend divinization be restored in us. But all this is possible in no other way than by our return to him, a return involving much torment. God does indeed give his life in the fullest sense into our personal keeping. His eternal glory is committed to those whom he has redeemed, and not as something improper to our nature, 
an alien presence. Luke 16.11 No. True divinization communicates the unoriginate life of God himself effectively and forever. In other words, God's life is hypostasized by man just as God, having become incarnate, assumed into his hypostasis the form of our being that he himself had created. In the age to come, God's union with men will be complete in all the content of his being, except, of course, identity of essence. This last cannot be conveyed to mankind and will remain forever inconceivable for all created beings, angels, and humans. The kingdom of the Father is the ontological union of all who are saved, and as such cannot be shaken by anyone or anything, Hebrews 12.27. Inspiration from on high depends to a considerable extent on us, on whether we open our heart so that the Lord, the Holy Spirit who stands at the door and knocks, does not have to enter forcibly. If anyone hears his voice and opens the door, he will come to him and will sup with him and he with God. Revelations 3.20 The Lord preserves the freedom of those created in his image, and we have to know what is acceptable to him. Hence the need for each and all of us to ban deeds and impulses which may grieve the Spirit of God. Honest abiding in the sphere of Christ's commandments heals our sinful mortality, and all life becomes penetrated by the uncreated light of divine eternity. When the soul existentially comes in contact with this eternity, base passions fall away, and we turn aside from fratricidal struggle over worldly advantages. The peace of Christ descends on us, and we receive the strength to love our enemies. My peace I give unto you, John 14, 27. Christ's peace is the most precious of all riches, of all the delights and joys on the earth. It constitutes sure knowledge of the living God of our Father. It is enough for us to have something to eat, a roof over our heads, raiment to protect us from cold and embarrassment. See 1 Timothy 6, 8 provided our spirit be free to devote itself to contemplation of divine being as revealed to us by Christ. Longing after the celestial world, fond striving for it, is our delight and fills even sickly old age with the splendid hope of the Father's merciful embrace. Chapter 10, Emptiness, God Has Withdrawn Continued, Part 2. The abandonment by God that St. Siloan was given to experience before the Lord appeared to him is, in spiritual fact, the saint's own kenosis. In this abandonment by God, which he expressed in the words, God cannot be moved by entreaty, we see the divine providence that allowed Siloan to plunge into black despair, to be reduced to naught by God's withdrawal from him. But it was this very descent into hell that prepared his soul to meet with Christ, who appeared to him with great force. The light of divinity illumined him, and the grace of the Holy Spirit flooded his whole being. Despair and emptiness were transformed into Christ-like humility, which is indescribable. Let us look how Siloan writes of what happened. Quote, 
The Lord taught me to keep my mind in hell and not despair, and thus my soul is humbled. But this is not yet true, that is, divine humility which is indescribable. And Christ-like humility dwells in the little ones. They rejoice that they are of no account. The Lord gave me to understand this. And I write of these things because my soul knows the Lord. The Lord manifests himself through the Holy Spirit only to the humble. And humility is the light in which we can behold the light which is God. And he who has learned to know God through the Holy Spirit has learned humility of him, Christ God, and become like unto his teacher, Christ, the Son of God. Matthew eleven twenty nine. No mortal man can attain the fullness of Christ in this world. Christ is an astounding miracle. God, all-powerful, makes himself of no reputation through the incarnation with all its attendant sufferings, even to death on the cross and descent into hell. The miracle is that being found in fashion as a man, Philippians 2.8, he displayed the perfection of divine self-emptying love. It is finished. No one can compare with him, but there must be some, if only a few, who are similar and know God by the Holy Spirit. I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you, ye have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which is given me, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, whereby when you read, ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, whereof I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power. Unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given. Ephesians 3, 1-8 Pray always with all prayer and supplication for all saints, and for me that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. Ephesians 6, 18-19 St. Paul begged the Ephesians to pray for him, that utterance might be given to him, that he might open his mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. How much more do I need the prayers of each and all that I may truly present one of the most important aspects of Christian life? In my case, it is not a question of some exceptional revelation, though it is a very important one, as my experience as a confessor has proved to me, by reminding me that people in the Mass have forgotten the ways to salvation. And so I earnestly beg of you, Pray for me. Great was the spiritual genius of blessed St. Silouan, to whom, whose feet the divine providence led me. He spoke and wrote of his experience in words that were simple, yet intelligible only to those who lived in the same atmosphere as he did. I have had the opportunity in my life of discussions with some outstanding representatives of academic theology. It was obvious that even those who were familiar with the works of the holy ascetics of ancient Egypt and Palestine possessed no personal experience of the things concerning which the fathers testified. This is why I have decided to try and show the grandeur of the world in which St. Silouan's spirit dwelt, to indicate something of the reality concealed behind his simple words, such as, for instance, quote, I began to do as the Lord had taught me, and my mind was purified, and the Spirit bore witness to my soul of salvation. What exactly do a pure mind and the witness of the Spirit mean? 
The fact that by his, St. Siloan's prayers, I too was placed in the same spiritual perspective allows me to venture on this task. To be sure, I did not receive in full measure the blessing that the Lord poured out on him, but nevertheless it was given to me, the least of men, to live approximately the same experience. Because at certain times in my life I have known something of the spiritual climate in which St. Siloan lived. I presume now to discuss this vastly important matter, though it will involve broaching profound dogmatic problems. God cannot be moved by entreaty, thought the saint. He had fallen into despair. It seemed to him that God had rejected him finally, and there was no longer any salvation for him. He saw eternal perdition for his soul. This spirit of despair is so oppressive and wearisome that even to think back on it is terrifying. The soul has not the strength to endure it for long. I went into the church and looking at the icon of the Savior and said, O Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy upon me, a sinner. At these words I saw in place of the icon, the living Lord, and the grace of the Holy Spirit filled my soul and my whole body. And thus, through the Holy Spirit, I knew that Jesus Christ is God, and I yearned to suffer for Christ. The very fact of the living Lord's appearance to Siloan shortly after his time of trial shows that at the moment his state was not far removed from Christ's condition on Golgotha. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Matthew twenty-seven forty-six. We know that to contemplate anything divine, one must himself be in harmony with the object of contemplation. After his cry, Christ yielded his spirit into the hands of the Father. And what happened with Siloan? In mortal sadness, he goes into the church, and hardly has he uttered the prayer, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy upon me, before he sees him living, and his whole being is filled with the fire of the grace of the Holy Spirit to the limits of his strength. The vision exhausted him, and the Lord vanished. But the divine spirit had lifted Siloan to heaven where he heard ineffable words. Afterwards, St. Siloan confirmed that when the Lord himself appears in great light, the soul cannot fail to recognize in him her creator and God. My Lord and my God, exclaimed Thomas the Apostle to the risen Christ. John twenty twenty eight, And Saul, the Paul that is, on the road to Damascus, in the same light recognized Christ God. Strange and quite extraordinary is the life of the Christian. Desertion by God and the darkness of eternal perdition are interwoven with the appearance of God in uncreated light. The Lord Jesus cried to the Father, Why hast thou forsaken me? We know quite surely that on the divine plane, ontologically, this could not happen. That is, that the Father could have withdrawn from his co-eternal Son of one substance with himself, in whom he had poured the plentitude of his eternal being. How then are we to interpret what exactly did happen with the man Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy 2.5? Looking at St. Siloan's experience like that of all the other pious ascetics down the ages, we see a painful state of feeling bereft of God coinciding with a maximum effort to observe God's commandments. We remark this phenomenon, but can give no explanation for it. 
especially when it is a question of the God-man Christ. In the, in the main, these infrequent instances of providential abandonment by God must be seen as an immeasurably great divine gift. Otherwise, it is difficult to understand the promised divinization of fallen man. The event that we are now discussing is a self-emptying of divine love. Christ Jesus, being in the form of God that is, being in his essence God, made himself of no account. So humbling himself in the act of obedience to the Father as to renounce his human will altogether and go to death on the cross. My soul is exceedingly sorrowful even unto death. And he went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. And his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Luke twenty two forty four, And he went away again the second time and prayed, saying, O my Father, if this cup may not pass away from me, except I drink it, thy will be done. And he prayed the third time, saying the same words. Matthew 26, verses 38 to 44. And precisely for this, God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. Philippians 2, 6 and following. The Christ man is exalted. No one can come up to him in the act of his self-emptying, to go to an infamous death appointed for evildoers, to hang stripped naked on the cross in the presence of his mother, of the women who had attended him, to be deserted by the disciples, to see the final failure of his preaching. But who can reckon all that he suffered inside himself during those days? So then, this kind of abandonment by God is another pole of divine love. This love is commanded of us by Christ in such terrible words. If any man come to me and hate not all that is dear to him, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Luke 14, verse 26 and 33. There can be very few in the whole history of the church to whom it has been given to live the grace-bearing abandonment by God to such a degree as the servant of the high god Siloan. When the great light shone on him in his vision of Christ, the abandonment by God that had felt like a deadly pain was translated into Christ-like humility, which is indescribable, which is the ontological aspect of the eternal love of God, the three-in-one. God, absolute in his incalculable might, in some searchless fashion, is also absolute in his self-emptying humility. Everyone who ardently loves Jesus Christ, God our Creator and Savior, without fail experiences two states of being that would seem to be diametrically opposed, descent into hell and ascent into heaven. St. Paul wrote of it like this, quote, Unto me, whom am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given that I should preach the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ, to the intent that now under the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God, according to the eternal purpose which he proposed in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of him. Wherefore I desire that ye, 
Faint not at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 8 to 19. The diapason of Christian life ranges far beyond ordinary human hearing, farther both below and above. Regrettably, very many of us are deaf to the wondrous cadences of the divine hymn coming to us from the ineffable depths of eternal being. To the man who believes in the divinity of Christ and so constructs his life on the rock of his teachings, hidden mines of treasure are revealed that are impenetrable for those who have not accepted Christ as very God, as the holy, all-holy, and absolute authority, Matthew 23, 8. Authority, not compulsion, but true eternal fact and perfect love. Blessed St. Siloan distinguished two kinds of humility, ascetic and divine. When, not long before his death, I asked him, Staritz, are you going to die? He answered, I have not yet learned humility. I have no doubt at all that he was thinking of the divine humility of Christ, which he could never forget. With this in mind, he had written, Blessed is the man who remains pure in soul and body. The Lord loves him and gives him the grace of the Holy Spirit. And this grace so commits the soul to love of God that for delight in the Holy Spirit, she cannot tear herself from God and aspires insatiably to him, since there is no end to divine love. Though I know someone, he was thinking of himself, whom the merciful Lord visited with his grace, and if the Lord had asked him, Wouldest thou that I give thee more grace? His soul infirm in the body would have said, Lord, thou seest that if there were more, I could not bear it and would die. To those still in the body, such extreme tension is given but rarely, and then just for a brief instant, enough, however, to unveil eternity where time is not. I explain poorly. I see that not only the humility of Christ as the perfection of divine love is inexpressible, but for me many other aspects of this life are equally impossible to put into words. We are bidden to be perfect even as God is perfect, a perfection we do not attain but the very desire for which makes us sense with our whole being the touch of absolute divinity. He draws the soul to himself, and the soul suffers that she has not the strength to contain this life, and thus, crucified, lives out her time on earth. And she cannot come down from this cross, because every time she considers coming down, Matthew twenty-seven forty, the flow of real eternity decreases in her. Christianity, it may be said, is not some philosophical doctrine, but actually life. Life and love to the end, to hate for oneself. This is the great mystery of godliness, 1 Timothy 3.16, made known unto us by revelation, Ephesians 3.3, 3, in Christ, 
set forth in his word, made manifest in the example of Christ that our hands have handled, 1 John 1.1, 1, 1, and yet remaining impenetrable, inviolable, indescribable. St. Siloan in many different ways expressed this same idea that, that God and all that is of heaven can only be known through the Holy Spirit. And it is by the gift of this Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father that we in our church existentially by actual experience know the self-emptying of the Son of the Father in the act of incarnation, in the wilderness, in the prayer in Gethsemane and on Golgotha. He, the Holy Spirit, shows us the self-emptying that lies before us too in our death. Through faith in our Lord and God Jesus Christ, this self-emptying is possible for us to a certain extent. But can we go further? We are taught in the church to live the birth of the Son in the Holy Trinity as the self-emptying of the Father giving all of himself in the whole plentitude of his eternal being to the Son. And so the Son is equal with the Father in absolute fullness of divine being. Then we see the reverse movement. The Son, in like fullness of self-emptying love, gives himself to the Father, both in his divinity and his humanity. Is it permissible to venture beyond one's own experience and in mental contemplation conceive of the participation of the Father and the Holy Spirit in the Son's death on the cross? The Son, by whom all things were made, John 1, 3, is the creator of man. He became incarnate. He took into his divine hypostases our form of a servant, and consequently the sufferings of mankind after the fall. In the pre-eternal council of the Trinity, this way of redemption for fallen man was decided on. Is not this the self-emptying of the Father who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life in the bosom of the divinity? And the Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father lives the same love as is in the Father. Thus the Father and the Spirit eternally participate in the work, John 17, 4, which was given to Jesus to do. The canonic character of perfect love is discovered to us by God. And now we know that there is no other way to fullness of divinization for us than kenosis. It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the Spirit, John 19, 30. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. Hebrews 2.18 So we live in the hope that at the hour of our death he will be with us if we were with him in our ascetic striving. Chapter 11 Love to the Point of Self-Hatred Jesus Christ, God without beginning, gave us commandments capable of opening the mind and heart of man to infinity. At first, however, the believer in the intransient significance of the gospel word, see Matthew 24, verse 35, is introduced into the inner realm of the soul by a constant placing of himself before the judgment seat of God. He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. 
for I have not spoken of myself as man, but the Father which has sent me. He gave me a commandment, what I should say, and I know that his commandment is life everlasting. John 12, verses 48 to 50. The natural consequence of pious striving to keep the commandments will be a frank recognition of one's own impotence. But the arduous struggle to abide in the spirit of the Lord's prescript will persuade man that in their spiritual essence, Christ's testaments are the uncreated light of divinity. Not a single action on our part can achieve the perfection demanded by the all-holy God. The light of the gospel teaching that came down from heaven sharpens our inner eyesight and refines our capacity to imbibe so that what was formerly beyond our grasp can no longer escape us. Every impulse of the heart or mind is swiftly grasped and we see ourselves as we are. The more intense our dread of being unworthy of God, the more naked our inner world becomes, both for ourselves and, of course, before the face of God. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open under the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Hebrews 4.13 Vigilance of mind and heart leads to a conclusion that many who are inexperienced may find incredible or exaggerated. The Christian discovers present in himself every sort of evil, either explicit or at least potential, and sees himself as indeed the most wicked of all men and all things. Before the divine light appears to us, we live like the blind. Without this light, we fail to recognize sin. Without it, we do not realize the magnitude of the fall of man. Only the inspiration of the Holy Spirit can enable us to perceive the calamity within ourselves and then live the great drama of the whole history of the human race. The consequence of the fall is disease which no earthly doctor can cure. We cannot of our own strength conform our heart and mind, see Philippians 2.5, to the spirit of Christ's commandments. On the other hand, the painful experience of our fight against the law of sin, Romans 7.23-25, acting within us shows us whence came the gospel word. John 7, 17. For all its torment, this is a precious period in our life. We are enveloped on all sides by the flame of the passions taking the form of fiery trial, 1 Peter 4, 12. But grace comes to our aid, which at first we do not see as light, but feel as heavenly fire consuming in us the roots of sin. How many times did my soul hang in terrible fear, suspended over the abyss, like a small, helpless being. Not earthly fear. I did not hanker after any interminable prolongation of this life. My dread sprang from the fact that after God had appeared to my soul, I saw the deep sores on the whole body of my life and realized how utterly unfitted I was for the kingdom. I cannot describe the grief which plunged into me into prolonged, profound weeping. But foolish as I was, I did not know that I was in the hands of my Creator, and it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Hebrews 10.31 I twisted and turned, struggling to tear myself from His holy hands, but all my efforts were in vain because there was nowhere else to go. Nothing in the whole wide world attracted me or promised to satisfy my spirit. The Lord said, be not afraid of them that kill the body, but fear him 
which after he hath killed, hath power to cast into hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear him. Luke 12, 45. Having committed myself to death on the cross, the Lord did not indulge in empty, meaningless words. And I had no wish to minimize the categorical emphasis of this pronouncement. The life-giving fear never left me. And what is more, something strange would happen. So soon as the fear abated, I would feel a slackening of the vital strength within me. Prayer grew weak. My mind was distracted. The sense of the divine disappeared in the midst. My spirit began to die. Only much later on did I realize that the Lord was schooling me, and my torment was turned to incalculable good. The dread of eternal damnation and my tears of repentance in some mysterious fashion converted the whole of me into prayer. Freely, with no special effort, my spirit rose to a state of contemplation of hitherto unknown realities, of the infinite spaces of being, the somber regions of hell, but also heaven illumined by the uncreated light. Blessed be his name forevermore. Do not expect an orderly, properly constructed account of my, the life of my soul during the long years of the past. Sometimes I would descend into the depths of hell. At others, the Lord would raise me even to the heavens. Or I would be standing on the indefinable boundary, whence one contemplates both the ineffable light of divinity and the outer darkness that fills the soul with dread, dread of an especial kind, nothing like the fear of physical death something qualitatively different. A blissful eternity would open before my spirit, though it was still a long way off, and a timeless tenbrity likewise made its presence felt within me. I was torn in two, captive to the tyranny of the passions. I suffered and thirsted for immutable good. I strained toward God. Prayer of repentance absorbed me utterly. A weightless, invisible force transported me into spiritual space. There I was alone. The earth vanished. There was no sun. There were no stars, no people, nor any creature. And I was not aware of my body. I did not see light as such, though my eyes penetrated into fathomless depths. In sick despair my soul pined for God. Yes, yes, I am a sinner. But I long for God, holy God. I was conscious, not of concrete acts in my past, only of a piercing awareness of having defected from God, whom I had known in my childhood and early youth. He had turned away from me after I departed from him in mad search for something supposedly superior, the suprapersonal absolute. Impossible now to say how long I prayed in those nights in the desert. I remember that when my soul became conscious again of the material world, the spiritual feeling of having been in a soundless, indescribable depth remained with me, in me. In that infinity, there is no up or down, no forward, no backward, neither right nor left. Yet there came a moment when it seemed to me that I was beginning to move, and it felt like a falling, and a choked cry would burst from my throat, Lord, save me. Thou alone canst reach me in the bottomless pit. And he saved me. But why did it feel as if I were falling? Was it not because my mind could no longer stand in the eternal? For after that the vision ended. 
Conditions in the desert favored this kind of prayer since I was alone and had only myself to consider. But that does not mean that prayer in its essence depends on external circumstances. It is a gift from God bound up with another gift, that of repentance. Luke 24, 46-47 I was acquainted with its elements even before settling on Manathos. I knew it there in the monastery too, but less intensely, less frequently. It takes one out of the framework of time, of earthly categories. In the actual state of prayer, totally unaware of the outside world, one thinks only of God and alone stands before him alone. In the solitude of my grotto, I had the unique privilege of being able to devote myself entirely to this prayer, free of earthly cares. It possessed me for months on end. It would be interrupted in daylight hours by mundane concerns, but when the working day came to an end, when the sil- with the silence of the night in my retreat, prayer would embrace me anew, and again I would be oblivious to all else, conscious only of a terrible sense of sin, which engendered in me sorrow, shame, abhorrence, and even hatred of myself. And once more I would drown in tears of repentance, and my spirit would enter a nameless infinity. I have always been very slow at interpreting what is happening inside myself. I spent long periods without reasoning. Thoughts would occur to me in discussions with other people, but not when I was alone before God. I did not theologize. I did not analyze myself. I did not cling to the states of mind that I experienced, although I dwelt in a formless mental sphere. Could this be labeled insanity? But when the madness left me, only then did I comprehend the irreparable loss to my spiritual being. Through that prayer, the meaning had partially been revealed to me of Christ's words, If any man come to me and hate not his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Luke 14, 26. God's mercy toward me was manifest in that he granted me a potent agony of repentance which drove me to insatiable prayer, the sort of prayer where the soul is unremembering, thinks of nothing but unbridled reaches out to God, invisible yet beloved, inapprehensible yet known, inaccessible yet near. I cannot find words to describe the riches that the Lord gave me. I will try and list briefly the thoughts which occurred to my heart in the grievous hours when I recalled the prayer that I had forfeited. The normal consequences of keeping the Lord's commandments is an extreme reduction of ourself, a self-emptying, without sincere recognition that we are indeed devils incarnate in our fall, we shall never arrive at fullness of repentance. Through total repentance, we break loose from the deadly embrace of selfish individualism and begin to contemplate the divine universality of Christ, who loved us unto the end. When we hate ourselves for the evil that lives in us, then it is that the boundless horizons of the love commanded of us are revealed. Apart from Christ, we shall never embrace the whole world in the vivifying flame of the grace that cometh down from on high, nor perceive the ontological dimensions of the second commandment, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven to 40. It was given to blessed Saint Siloanos to pray for the whole world as for himself. May the Lord grant to each and all to behold the light of such prayer, through which the primordial image of man is restored. Whoever has not come close to this state should hesitate to call himself a Christian, knowing and feeling shame for his unworthiness, 
If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, meaning all his old notions and concepts, and take up his cross and follow me. If any man come to me and hate not his own life, he cannot be my disciple. He is not worthy of me. See Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, Matthew chapter 10, 37 to 38, and St. Luke 14, 26 and 33 to continue. It frightens me to wonder where and in what lay my iniquity before God, which barred my way to the plentitude that was poured out on St. Siloan. The thought of my past straying is linked with an acute sense of my general unworthiness to stand before such a God. And if at certain moments of my life I have approached the borderlines of repentance, when the whole man is sanctified, this was only made possible by St. Siloan's prayers. I have not reached his measure, but I do know that what I write about is true. God is love. He is light, and in him is no darkness at all. 1 John 4, 8. Christ's love is by its nature life-giving fire sent down from heaven by the coming on earth of the Son of God. Luke 12, 49. This love is the uncreated life of God himself. Within the confines of our earthly existence, it burns away all that is alien to it, and at the same time fills us with the energy of new being, till then inconceivable. It is essential that strength from on high should come to us, to make us worthy of knowing this love existentially. Without such experience, no man born of a woman can understand the seemingly paradoxical gospel commandment, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, Matthew 5.44, but hate your kin and brethren. In our urge to apprehend Christ's commandments in their global entirety, again and again we return to these two seemingly conflicting injunctions. The inconsistency is eliminated once it is given us to experience both these states. Then the Spirit bears witness within us that death is vanquished and we anticipate the grace of our promised resurrection. John 6.40 Our God is a consuming fire. Hebrew 12.29 Divine love is the kernel of eternal being. In it all the other attributes of divinity, the wisdom, the kingdom, the power, the light, find their loftiest expression. It contains the beauty of the eternally unshakable kingdom. Christ's love is the revelation of the mystery of the Father's love, too. Having found a heart ready to accept its flame, Christ's love takes up its abode therein. But this exceptional blessing is our, in our world allows its servant no rest until the work is finished. It is a fearful thing to preach the prayer generated by this love. Painful is the way that leads to the acquisition of holy love, which may be why so many renounce Christianity, preferring other roads to the cross of this love. But there is no other truth, just as there is no other God. John 14.6 The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Matthew 26.41 at selected moments, the uncreated light of Christ's love may touch the earthborn heart. In it is divine eternity. It is the sole and ultimate purpose of our striving. Without the action of love that proceedeth from the Father, neither our mind in its fallen state, 
nor our heart can follow Christ to Gethsemane, still less to Golgotha. The profound weeping of our whole being because of the presence of this love aflame within us when we pray for the world can be too much for our powers of endurance. Then our spirit enters into divine eternity and prayer is stilled. So painful is the prelude to the blessing going forth of our spirit to God. But afterwards, the soul feels sweet repose and the peace which passes all understanding of which St. Paul wrote. Philippians 4, 7. To return to everyday consciousness, everyday life, is accompanied by a certain subtle sensation of grief. The soul soon encounters the same situations as before and again suffers many a wound. In following Christ with its whole strength, man's spirit feels the visible world like a narrow prison cell. Every good impulse meets with the savage opposition of the dark powers. God is love. He is consuming fire. It is not at all easy to approach this fire and far from safe to enlarge on the subject. The soul shrinks with the dread of finding herself unworthy after her departure from this life. For many years, especially on the holy mountain, in the desert, as in the monastery, my mind, in its reaching up to God, separated itself from the past. Separated. Not through any ascetic effort, but because prayer of repentance was all-engrossing. But since I was appointed a spiritual confessor, I have sometimes had to think back on my life, and now engaged on writing my confession and spiritual biography in one, I note not ungratefully how the touch of divine fate has left so many indelible marks on the body of my life. The spirit of the living God writes, not in tables of stone, but in fleshly tables of the heart, 2 Corinthians 3.3. That which God hath written has become the content of my being. What exactly do I want to say? Here is my theme song, that through repentance granted to me, even to the point of hate for myself, I unexpectedly experienced a wonder, wondrous peace. An uncreated light enveloped, enveloped me, penetrating within, making me, too, light like itself, giving me to live the kingdom of the God of love, the kingdom of which there shall be no end. Luke one thirty three. I marveled and shall never cease marveling at the humble condescension of Almighty God to me, a thing of naught. But he gave us the commandment, take heed that ye despise not one of these little ones, for it is not the will of your Father which is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Matthew eighteen ten to 14 We see that he himself lives in accord with his own commandments. The gospel precepts contain God's revelation of himself. The more deeply we enter into their spirit, the more specific will be our vision of God. And when these commandments, by his good providence, come to be the one and only principle of our whole being, both temporal and eternal, then we too shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. God is love. Chapter 12 the Uncreated Light, Part 1 Christian life is founded on the fact of the incarnation of God. In our flesh, created by Him, 
he made manifest his pre-eternal perfection, thereby enabling us to judge the extent to which we either fail to reach his stature or approach his supreme being. If we resemble him in the inner workings of our heart, in the manner of our thinking, in our reactions to all that happens to us on the earthly plane, we shall ipso facto become like unto him in his divinity too. The Gospels furnish a clear enough picture of him, while the epistles describe the experience of life in him. His commandments are the uncreated light in which he particularly reveals himself to us as he is. 1 John 3.2 I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. John 8.12 The effect upon us of this light is amazing. We behold and marvel at the searchless miracle of our appearance in this world. The act of the creation of all things is a mystery drawing us to him. But prior to this enlightening from on high, caught in the darkness of ignorance, lost and bewildered, we struggle, step by painful step, towards our affirmation in being. Why this intricate process, the genesis of our spirit in a body made of the dust of the earth, for the creation from non-being of sons of God? How is it possible to conjoin spirit, the likeness of the absolute, and the material world? It is not easy for our spirit, by nature immortal, to be held fast in a body subject to disintegration and death. Hence the unremitting conflict between the spirit straining up towards God, anxious to have the body likewise incorruptible and able to follow in the ascent, and the body pulling downwards to the earth from which it was taken and communicating its mortality to the spirit. Unable to understand myself, Weary of endless conflict and insoluble contradictions, I tried the experiment of putting myself in the Creator's place and pondered how I would have ordered the world. Shutting myself up in the dark and quiet, I concentrated my thoughts on the task. Starting from my own experience of being and keeping in mind the difficulties that constantly beset me, I proceeded from the ephemeral to the ever-widening horizons of cosmic being. And what happened? Instead of rectifying the incoherencies in God's work, I soon found myself marveling at the mind which had created heaven and earth with such know-how. And it was disagreeable and at the same time a delight to discover my own impotence. My infantile mind smiled at the father in the way a child in the cradle smiles at its mother. My soul overflowed with wonder at the unfathomable wisdom of God. Somewhere far away in the vast heavens a faint light shone, inspiring songs of praise and beginning a hunger in me to be associated with the great creative work of the Father. Sometimes when I was engaged in landscape painting, people would come and stand quietly behind me, watching me work. In the same way, I wanted to stand close to the Almighty and delight in contemplating His creative inspiration. Something similar may happen when death stares one in the face or threatens to carry off those dear to one. My presumption was naive, but it contained elements of dissatisfaction with God. In the book of Job, I found passages that paralleled my case. The Lord answered out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up now thy loins like a man, for I will demand of thee, and answer thou me. Where wast thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? 
Who hath laid the measures thereof? Whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened? Or who laid the cornerstone thereof? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. In the Septuagint version, when the stars were made, all my angels praised me with a loud voice. Hast thou entered into the springs of the sea? Or hast thou walked in the search of the depth? Have the gates of death been opened unto thee? Where is the way where light dwelleth? And as for darkness, where is the place thereof? Who hath put wisdom in the inward parts? Or who hath given understanding to the heart? Moreover, the Lord answered Job and said, Shall he that contendeth with the Almighty instruct him? He that reproveth God, let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that thou canst do everything. Therefore have I uttered that I understood not, things too wonderful for me which I knew not. Heretofore I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth thee. Wherefore I abhor myself and repent of my foolishness in dust and ashes. Job chapters 38 to 42. When we examine ourselves in the light of the Lord's commandments, we see that we are utterly corrupt and devoid of any capacity for good. Aghast, we repent before God and implore him to restore us from the death with which we are stricken. We are ready to break the chain of our self-will and give ourselves over entirely to his holy and perfect will. But oh, how hard this is, especially at the onset. Yet it is the means whereby we may join the streams of his eternity. To trust in God in times of danger concentrates our spirit in him, and we can feel his immortal breath upon us. This great gift comes through humble but searing repentance. A miracle. The more I see God, the more ardent does my repentance become, since I the more clearly recognize my unworthiness in his sight. And this miracle is repeated invariably from age to age. Consider this from the Old Testament. Quote, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. Above it stood the seraphims, and one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. Isaiah chapter 6. The New Testament gives us the remarkable instance of the Apostle Paul. He recognized his sin only after the Lord had appeared to him in the great light of his divinity on the road to Damascus. Afterwards, he retired to the desert, see Galatians chapter 1, verse 17, to repent before him whom he had persecuted. Paul had a terrifying past history. Until his encounter with Christ, he could have echoed the prophet Elijah, quote, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, 1 Kings 19.10. And then suddenly, what he had had up to then thought of as light and divine truth now appeared to be darkness and enmity with God. 
and in bitter grief he called himself a sinner worse than any other. Quote, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. 1 Timothy 1.15 Quote, Christ died for our sins, was buried and rose again the third day according to the scriptures. He was seen by Cephas, then of the twelve. After that, he was seen of above five hundred. And last of all, he was seen of me also, as one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, that am not meet to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. And quote, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and following. And quote, and I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who hath enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before a blasphemer, and a persecutor, and injurious, but I obtained mercy. 1 Timothy 1. And Peter, after denying Christ, went out and wept bitterly. Matthew 26.75 The inner state of those who have come to know the divine manifestations in strength may seem incomprehensible, even paradoxical to many. They genuinely consider themselves worthy of hell, but the Lord to them continues blessed for all time. The vision of the infinite sanctity of the humble God on the one hand and the feeling of the infernal darkness within us on the other contracts a man's whole being into an irresistible, painful reaching up to God who is holy. This is accompanied by self-loathing and the soul is drowned in tears. The pain is spiritual, metaphysical, unbearable. The longing for forgiveness and reconciliation with God is like a deadly thirst a condition difficult to explain to those who do not know it. By its very nature, spiritual weeping is quite different from ordinary tears over some catastrophe in our finite life. When a man weeps with his whole being from the pain caused by the knowledge of his vileness, his torment far exceeds any outside suffering, and he sees himself as the worst of men. The light of God's kingdom, whether seen on Mount Tabor, on the road to Damascus, or anywhere else, draws one to itself, but it appears unattainable, infinitely beyond our merit, or rather, demerit. Prayer, in this holy pain, can sweep man's spirit into another world. Everyday life is forgotten, and the body no longer makes itself felt. The desert ascetics termed this the hell of repentance that likens us to Christ descending into his hell of love. However acute the adamantic torment However profound the suffering, it is accompanied by the joy of the divine summons and the light of new life. Our fathers of the church, with the gift of grace repeated from generation to generation down the ages, explicitly declare that there is no other way to the Father of lights. The grace of such repentance is given to the world through the prayer of Gethsemane, the crucifixion on Golgotha, and the resurrection of Christ. St. Luke 24, verse 17. There is a risk in speaking frankly of such matters with unbelievers who ergo are unduly ignorant of them. It is typical of St. Paul's natural man to distort. Quote, For what man knoweth the things of a man save the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so the things of God knoweth no man but the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God, which things also we speak, not in the words 
which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Spirit teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they must be spiritually discerned. But he that is spiritual judgeth all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. End quote. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 11 to 15. To continue, before proceeding to describe, in so far as I am able, the action of divine light, perhaps it may not be inappropriate to begin with a brief description of light phenomena, which were given to me to encounter. As a young man, I was much preoccupied with the mysteries of being, and more than once I felt I saw my thinking energy like a light. The world of mental contemplation is essentially a radiant one. Indeed, our mind is an image of the primal mind, which is light. The intellect, concentrated on metaphysical problems, can lose all sense of time and material space, traveling, as it were, beyond their boundaries. In just such a situation, my mind would seem to be light. This state of being is naturally accessible to man, but later it became clear to me that it differs qualitatively from the event of the manifestation of God in uncreated light. Lord, forgive me. I am feared to speak. Heal me, hearten me, withdraw not from me. The apostles on Mount Tabor were found worthy to enter the realm of light proceeding from the Father and hear his voice bearing witness to his beloved Son. But this became possible for them only after they had confessed the divinity of Christ. It has been granted to me to contemplate different kinds of light and lights. The light the artist knows when elated by the beauty of the visible world. The light of phil philosophical contemplation that develops into a mystical experience. Let us even include the light of scientific knowledge, which is always and in inevitably of very relative value. I've been tempted by manifestations of light from hostile spirits. But in my adult years, when I returned to Christ as perfect God, the unoriginate light shone on me. This wondrous light, even in the measure vouchsafed to me from on high, eclipsed all else, just as the rising sun eclipses the brightest star. Confession of the divinity of Christ Jesus is the rock on which the church is built. See St. Matthew sixteen eighteen. Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, 1 Timothy 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth, John 1.1. 1, 1. The Son, unoriginate with the Father, became the Son of Man. He was born of the Virgin Mary. Her greatness as the mother of Jesus God is beyond human measure. It is impossible to isolate her from the Christ God, and yet at the same time she is of one substance with us in all things. The Christmas canticle tells us of all creatures bringing the gifts peculiar to their kind, Quote, but we men offer the mother. Without this, the historicity of the incarnation could be queried and doubts arise concerning the human nature of Christ, as in docetism. The fact of the incarnation occupies a central place all through the history of mankind in the whole of the created world. 
The event upset all human attempts to know the unoriginate principle, even when occasionally the effort seemed to be a stroke of genius. Now we are taught to avoid attributing to God the inventions of our brain and sick imagination. All our ideas, all, all our acknowledgments or rejections in no way modify God in his ageless being. Where am I with him? With him who revealed himself to us and said, not like a lunatic, but with absolute knowledge, I am the truth. John 14, 6. And the vast majority of his hearers were appalled. He in no way fits into the framework of our natural thinking. His injunctions are quite beyond us. His life is laden with such suffering that the soul is dismayed. And yet he says there is no other way but to follow him. So what are we? What am I to do? I tried out other ways and ended up convinced that truth was not to be found in them. I returned to him like a prodigal son, though with new understanding of man and being in general. His words now sounded differently in my ears. I believed in him utterly, and not because he fitted into my pattern of thought or because his commandments did not seem too difficult for me, or because I felt lighthearted about accepting suffering like him, no. But even now I am unable to describe the process that took place deep within me. I do not know what to call the power that was guardedly but effectively healing my mind and heart. In the most secret places of my heart, something mysterious stirred, mysterious though familiar to me since my early childhood, which developed after its own fashion. Now the progress would be slow, laborious. Now a sudden upsurge would sunder me from everything that was not he. It seems to me that this was nothing other than God's revelation of himself within my spirit. No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. John 6.44 Does his Father seek out only the great or the little ones too? And if so, why should I exclude myself, although I am less than the least? Was it not he who impregnated me with a minute degree of intuition, which nevertheless ran deeper than all my other thoughts, and was more trustworthy than all my other knowledge. Be that as it may, when I accepted belief without the faintest shadow of doubt in the divinity of Christ, I was irradiated by light, not of this world. And to a certain extent, like Paul, in his light I knew him. At first I believed with a lively faith. Afterwards, light appeared to me. Was it not the same with the apostles Peter, James, John, when they confessed his divinity through Peter as their mouthpiece? He replied, Verily I say unto you, There be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. A prediction shortly to be fulfilled on Mount Tabor. Paul likewise bore Christ in his heart whom he had persecuted and therefore the light of the Godhead appeared to him in strength. And I make bold to say that the vision of uncreated light is indissolubly bound up with belief in the divinity of Christ, bound up with, though in a curious manner, one depends on the other. In one light, both Christ and the Holy Spirit appear. This witness to the divinity of Christ, since it is impossible not to recognize God in this light of which we are speaking, its action is indescribable, 
In it lies eternity, in it the inexpressible goodness of love. In it our spirit contemplates immeasurable horizons, and not all at once, but gradually, discovers more and more that is new in this luminous breakthrough into heaven where God is. Exodus 20, 21. Now we are, the, are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. 1 John 3, 2. In actual fact, in his every manifestation to man, God remains one and the same, but we do not apprehend him as we should. We do not include him in his absoluteness, in the confines of the earth. Yet we see him, be it only through a glass darkly. 1 Corinthians 13, 12. And this glass is not always equally dark, depending on the extent to which we keep the commandments of Christ, in which God's revelation of himself is given to us. The Spirit of the Father lives in the commandments. The words which thou gavest me I have given unto them, and they have received them and have known surely that I came out from thee. John 17, 8. Also, if ye continue in my word, then ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. St. John 8, 31-32. Reception of truth must happen in freedom. No one and nothing can force it on man, nor can it forcibly be removed. Faith by decree cannot be perfect in its roots, though it may progress to true faith, that is, faith through which truth comes to dwell in us as something sought after and longed for, and for all eternity. Truth is self-being. It is revealed to us as personal absolute, one being in three persons. Union with him imparts to us too the divine form of being, immutable for all time. In so far as we continue in it, the gospel word becomes crystal clear and is assimilated by us to such an extent that we possess it as we possess our mother tongue. When it becomes our very lifeblood, then we are approaching likeness to Christ, who gave us this treasure. And as I have often said before, our likeness to the incarnate God is transmitted by analogy from this visible plane into eternity as our divinization, our eternal dwelling in the sphere of divine being. Conversely, it must be observed in the same connection that when the gospel word is not translated into action in our lives, it not only remains incomprehensible in its eternal essence, but becomes an opaque screen between God and us. We cannot attain to the fullness of the perfection of Christ. Therefore, all our conclusions concerning him fall short. But it is of momentous importance that his hidden world be revealed to us, even if only partially. In the experience of grace given to us in our long ascetic struggle, peering, as it were, through a slit in a fence, we do glimpse the light of divinity. And what can I say? My life is based on the conviction that God, the creator of the world, my creator too, absolute in his primordial being, came down to us, made known to us the path to his eternal life, disclosed to us the enigma of death, of sin, that is, and made manifest to us the purpose of our life, which is love. The manifestation of light affords man 
existential knowledge of God in which heart, mind, and body participate. But we cannot contain all its plentitude, which fact stimulates an eager desire to expand our communion with him and thoroughly penetrate with our whole selves. There is an alluring strength in this yearning after God which brings joy and at the same time pain. Aware of being still so inexpressibly distanced from the longed-for Father, our spirit grieves, and prayer streams forth in a torrent. Prayer of richly varying experience. Our days and nights are taken up with the vital quest of ways to Him. In our heart of hearts, subjectively, we cannot for an instant doubt the divine providence of the holy love that may breathe in us at this time. But despite the overwhelming uprush of this wondrous love manifest in light, it would be not only wrong but dangerous too to trust oneself. We know from the scriptures how the most holy Virgin Mary hurried to the blessed Elizabeth to hear from her whether the revelation was true that she would bear a son, who should be great and be called son of the highest, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. See Luke 1, 32-33. Paul is another instance. He was caught up into paradise and heard unspeakable words which it is not lawful for man to utter, 2 Corinthians 12.4. And it pleased God to reveal his son in me, Galatians 1.15. Nevertheless, twice he journeyed to Jerusalem to communicate to Peter and others which were of reputation the gospel that he preached and received confirmation that he was not running in vain, Galatians 2.1-2. There is no end to similar instances in the history of our church which insists on the inflexible rule that one must submit to the appraisal of other and far more experienced elders recognized as faithful. And we hold to this tradition. Our being stamped through and through as having been formed of nothing, of the dust of the ground, which effectively prevents us from making any individual judgment concerning the self-existence of the absolute being. Moreover, we carry in ourselves the consequences of the fall of Adam, which finds expression in a tendency to self-divinization. Our freedom for self-determination, of course, testifies to our absoluteness, and we may easily lose our awareness of having been created, but created in the image of the absolute God, and that our absoluteness is no more than a reflection of the first absolute. Aberration on this account may be both intellectual and psychological. We may become victim to our imagination and regress far from actual reality, which is not individual but collective. We are called upon to contain in ourselves the whole fullness of being, human and even divine, but we must recognize that we are still a long way distant. And so it remains imperative for each one of us, whatever prophetic gift we may or may not possess, to make sure that we are included in joint being after the image of the triune God through the witness of other personae. We naturally seek such witnesses who are only to be found in the church, whose age-old knowledge immeasurably surpasses any individual experience. In the distant past, the apostles were able mentors who bequeathed to us in written form the message that they had received directly from God. After them, innumerable fathers, teachers, and ascetics handed down from generation to generation, first and foremost, the spirit of life itself, 
which they often confirmed in their writings too. We believe that every given historical moment in the church has its living attesters, that until the end of time, mankind will never be bereft of genuine knowledge of God. Solely after finding authoritative confirmation, can we rely on our individual experience and then only in due measure. Our spirit must not pause in its elan toward God, and at each fresh step, it is essential to remember that self-confident isolation of our personality may mean sinning against truth. O heavenly King and Comforter, Spirit of Truth, which proceedeth from the Father, and dost repose in the Son, come and abide in us, guide us into all the truth, and save our souls, O Thou who art good. Howbeit when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. So the Lord promised us before going to his death on the cross. It is torture to realize that one is distanced from God, God mysterious yet beloved. Now when I think back on what I did in fact happen with me in those blessed years, my mind remarks three tendencies. First, there was my consuming hunger for God, which seemed to be the only natural thing, the one thing needful. Luke 10.42, in my benighted state. Secondly, I was weak, irresolute in all things. So whence the prayer that exceeded my strength. And thirdly, was it not the Lord himself who drew me with his? Were not two wills conjoined, his and mine, insofar as our Creator and Father performs naught with us without our consent and cooperation? My anguish of soul continued unceasing, day and night. The torment swelled into the same uninterrupted prayer even in sleep or when other people were about, although then something kept me from giving any outward sign. But as soon as I was back in my room, almost before I could shut the door, the tears would overwhelm me. There were moments when the pain of being separated from God cast me to the floor, and in the silence of the night I would weep for hours over my dreadful loss. The whole of me, mind, heart, even my body, contracted into a single tight knot. And when the weeping exceeded a certain limit, the earth, the whole visible world disappeared from my consciousness and I was alone before God. The intangible light proceeding from the unoriginate let me see myself, not as I appear outwardly, not in my everyday circumstances, but in some strange fashion which I cannot describe, standing before my Creator naked to the bone, and there was nothing in me hid from his eyes. If the ascetic struggle be interrupted, interpreted as the determined surmounting of our evil inclinations, then the life that is truly blessed with grace knows no struggle. The advent within a man of divine strength means that everything he does becomes a positive act, free of all inner contradictions. Both mind and heart, inspired by the love of Christ, are immune from doubt. When love of God is in full blood, it is transposed into contemplation of the uncreated light, which removes passion and brings the unutterable delight of liberty of spirit, since man now dwells beyond death and fear. The experience of this state of freedom from the passions is given to us sometimes for longer, sometimes for shorter periods. 
In essence, it is the first and foremost love that casteth out fear of death, filling the soul with inspired contemplation of our likeness to God. But at the same time, this very love plunges her into a sea of suffering. Indeed, the greater the love, the greater the suffering of the soul, as St. Siloan noted. Heavenly light is not subject to physical control. Different, elusive by nature. It comes in a way that we cannot define. Reality of other dimensions tears through the screen of our earthly body, penetrating our feeble, created nature. Perception of supernatural being is communicated to us, not through visual means, but by spiritual visions. These visions are variously described, depending on the recipient's character or ability to express himself. But whoever has experienced visitations from on high will recognize the reality behind the words. Proceeding from one being, this light leads to integral cognition of the God of love. There is no disparity in the after-effects of the manifestation of the genuine, uncreated light of the Holy Trinity. The visionary abandons all that he has to follow Christ. When he judges good and evil, not according to the frequency of their occurrence, but by the spiritual quality of his thoughts and reactions, the ascetic striver does indeed see himself as the worst of men. At the same time, he feels overwhelmed, despite his vileness, with measureless blessing from God. For God giveth not the spirit by measure. He is at a loss to understand why so many others, better endowed than he, remain outside the light. The fall of man was grievous, but withal not absolute. There was still the possibility of repentance and salvation. It is written, quote, that there, that was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. It follows that not a single one of us is completely outside the light. I label better endowed those who remain content with themselves and so knew him not and received him not. John 1, verses 9, 11, and 16. On the poor in spirit, grace did much more abound because of their burning repentance. Following the example of St. Paul, I too would beg anyone disposed to read what I write to pray God to inspire me, inarticulate as I am, worthily to expound the mystery of Christ. It is well known that he who sp speaks fittingly of God receives grace, while he who preaches falsehood will be cast into the bottomless pit. When we speak of spiritual matters before the face of the Spirit of Truth, we are the first to be judged against the words we utter, a judgment fearful to all those who hold dear the advent of the Savior of the world. In the climate of our times, it is no easy matter to talk of gifts that depend on belief in Christ. My aim is to describe as honestly as possible my own experience and to do so without concealing the impulses of my heart. Our God is the King of humble love, he calls on us to learn humility of him, for he is meek and lowly. His first words were, Repent ye. And the age-old experience of Christianity has shown that no sooner does one realize with bitterness and sorrow the vileness of one's demoniac pretensions to excel, no sooner does one begin to loathe the dark spirit within. Then the heart is led into the hitherto unknown sphere of freedom, where the divine light dazzles, and all is contemplation of the goodness of God. Within, silence. Hezekiah, 
the mind can no longer think, nor the heart breathe a sigh of thanksgiving. Oh, who will give me true understanding and the right words to speak of the light of divinity? I am filled with shame when I would bear my soul and uncover all that I have tried to keep hidden. Am I not mistaken in thinking I am prompted by Christ's love? The fear that overwhelms me as I set out on to make my confession, perhaps to many, will not let me draw back. And so I beseech you, pray for me wherever I be. Christ is the measure of all things, divine and human. He is the spiritual sun illuminating all creation. In the light of his commandments, we see the way. Through him, we have access unto the Father. Ephesians 2.18 Man, as the image of the absolute, is naturally drawn to the principle of all principles, to the primordial. This progression, however, begins with our descent into the abyss of hell. St. Paul says of Christ, quote, Now that he ascended, what is it that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things, end quote, Ephesians 4, 9-10. And this is precisely our itinerary after the fall. There's no other. We descend in the act of self-condemnation into the dark abyss, because from the moment that in Christ and through him the image of the eternal man is revealed to us, as he is in the creative mind of God, we apprehend the appalling extent of our blindness. After flashes of lightning, the night seems darker than ever. In the same way, the divine light shows up the blackness within us, and we are disgusted with the evil we see. The vision fills us with grief at every level of our being. Our spirit knows suffering that is outside time, greater than any physical pain. We are drowned in tears. Slaves of passion, we suddenly see ourselves torn from God, wounded by the arrows of his love. Out of the depths, we cry unto him. Come, O thou who alone art holy, and sanctify and cleanse me from all that defiles. Come, O thou who alone art in truth the living one, and restore me from the death with which I am stricken. Come, thou true light, and abide in me forever. Thus is repentance born in us. In the early stages, it is accompanied by a profound sadness. Subsequently, there are changes in tension and form, but repentance will remain with us constantly. There is no end to repentance on this earth. An end would indicate the fullness of our deification through perfect assimilation to the risen Christ. Sometimes the upsurge of repentance is overpowering. To the exclusion of aught else, mind and heart are filled with the agonizing sensation of being held fast in evil darkness. And then, unforeseen, the light of the uncreated sun penetrates the dungeon of the soul, the light which fills the whole cosmic expanse. It lovingly embraces us. We see him and dwell in him though we are not yet able to believe in this marvel of the goodness of our Father. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Matthew twenty-eight seventeen. They doubted, unable to take in what had happened. Wretched and abominable as I am, can this really have happened to me? End of part one. Chapter 12, The Uncreated Light Continued, part two.
I would look up at the clear blue sky, sometimes staring fixedly in one direction, at others letting my eyes sweep from one edge to the other. When my gaze reached the horizon, I would travel further and mentally embrace our whole planet. I would peer into the depths, trying to penetrate its boundaries. But the longer I stayed my attention on the marvelous scene, the more eagerly I studied the heavenly sphere, full of light. The more the mystery fascinated me. And when, by a gift from on high, it was vouchsafed to me to behold the uncreated light of divinity, I saw the blue sky of our planet as a symbol of the radiance of heavenly glory. This radiance is everywhere, filling all the depths of the universe, ever intangible, otherworldly for the created world. Azure blue is the color of transcendency. Many human beings have been given the blessing of beholding this marvelous light. Most of them cherished it the blessing as the most precious secret of their life and captivated by this wonder, departed to the other world. But others were bidden to bear witness to near and distant brethren of this lofty reality. The soul feels apprehensive at approaching the subject of the light, which visits the man who craves to behold the face of the eternal. Its nature is mysterious. In what terms can it be described? Incomprehensible, invisible, yet it may sometimes be seen by the physical eye. Quiet and gentle, it draws heart and mind to itself. Until the earth is forgotten, one spirit caught up into another sphere. It can happen in broad daylight as in the blackness of night. It is a soft light, yet more powerful than all around. In strange fashion, it embraces from without. You see it, but your attention is drawn deep within the inner man, into the heart burning with a love now compassionate, now grateful. It may happen that one is not aware of the material world, of external circumstances, and one sees oneself as light. Aches and pains disappear. Earthly cares fade away. Anxieties are absorbed into a sweet peace. The light used at first to appear like a thin flame, healing and cleansing, consuming both within and without everything, not in harmony with it, but calmly, hardly making itself felt. This holy light coming in strength brings humble love, banishes all doubt and fear, obliterates every earthly consideration, the whole pyramid of secular grades and hierarchies. The repentant man becomes a nobody, as it were. He no longer stands in the way of his brothers, seeks no place for himself in the world. This light is in itself life imperishable, suffused by the peace of love. It brings to our spirit knowledge of another indescribable being. The mind is stayed above reflection by the very fact of its entry into a new form of life, weightless, more finely attuned than anything the earth knows, the light conveys to the soul invulnerability, making her safe from everything that hitherto weighed her down. Death flees from this light, and the prayer, O holy God, holy and strong, holy and immortal, in marvelous fashion is conjoined with it. Our spirit exults. This light is God, God Almighty, and at the same time indescribably gentle. Oh, how discreet its approach! It will heal the heart broken by despair, the soul bruised by sin. It will inspire with the hope of victory. 
The strength that is salvation lies in a firm belief in the Christ, in Christ God. He is the supreme fact of unoriginate being. He is the beginning and the end, Alpha and the Omega. On the foundation stone of this faith, true repentance becomes possible even for us. And further spiritual experience like the experience of the apostles, the fathers of the church, ascetics of every generation. By the kind of gifts which follow on true repentance, we can recognize their celestial origin. The apostles Peter, James, and John on Mount Tabor were caught up in uncreated light. And in its radiance heard the incorporeal voice of the Father testifying to Christ as his beloved Son. St. Paul on the road to Damascus saw the same light. And in its manifestation realized the divinity of Jesus. The same gift has been vouchsafed through the centuries to many hierarchs, anchorites, martyrs, and righteous men. And even to our day, this grace still continues to flow down on the faithful. The vision of light is preceded by the austere repentance that cleanses us from the passions. This is an exceedingly painful battle, but sweet to heart and mind in its, is the vision of light. This light is love of a quite a special kind, the blessedness of which may increase so long as one's strength can bear the heavenly flame. This light, which cometh down from the Father of lights, regenerates and even recreates us. There is a radical change in the focus of our attention. Before it was centered on the material and temporary. Grace causes it to turn inwards and thence rise to the spiritual sphere of the unseen and eternal. 2 Corinthians 4.18 Temporal things that earlier seemed important may be of great moment. Our spirit now finds insignificant. Riches, power, fame, and the like lose their attraction. Even science which does not really bring us vital knowledge, knowledge of God, like philosophical speculation, which is not life in the true sense, ceases to have anything but transitory value. When this inviolable and nameless light embraces us and penetrates within to our soul, we stand, as it were, outside time. This light that proceeds from God is the light of love and knowledge, but love and knowledge of an especial kind, both merging into one, Indeed, they are one in eternity. Love unites us in very being, with very being. And lo, we abide in it, this being, and know it through our fusion with it. But there is no expressing this in words. Love draws us so powerfully that the spirit does not dwell on anything that is happening to us, although it is caught up in this happening. There is no movement toward oneself. Our spirit is intent on feeling the intangible, on clasping to itself that which cannot be clasped, on reaching that which cannot be reached, on being in him alone aware of naught else. The light manifests itself in different ways. What happens? I am not aware of how it is with others, but if in my madness I may make bold to speak of what I do know, I will say this. The Lord gave me the blessing of despair. He gave me even more, a sanctified loathing of myself steeped in sin. No one can find healing through his own efforts. In utter despair over myself as I am, the only remedy is to appeal to God's mercy in hopeless hope. The step may be total, irreversible. I am afraid to turn back. 
I have not the strength to resist sin, to sustain a new, spotless life. The Lord, however, does not always take to himself the soul in this state. Now the man out of whom the devils were departed, fearful of leaving Christ, besought him that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to thine own house, and show how great things God hath done unto thee. Luke 8, 38-39 And believe that now not one of the unclean spirits that were entered into thee shall have power over thee. Even if their case only relative, relatively resembles the Gadarenes, the possessed, aware of their inability to resist the devil within, fear being parted from the one who delivered them from the alien power. The life of the soul that experienced the blessing of the love of Christ is now harassed with affliction. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. John 16.33 To show, to bear witness to the light of divine love in some strange fashion provokes antagonism in a great many. We must learn to sorrow with Jesus. Such sorrow will help us penetrate more deeply into his earthly life. O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Matthew 17, 17. God rejoiced that man was born into the world. The fallen world rejoiced when God appeared on earth. And the angel said, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Luke 2, 10-11 This Savior brought us the gift of knowledge of the Heavenly Father. He made manifest to us the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations. Colossians 1, 26 He gave us the Word, which proceeds from the Father. John seventeen fourteen. He also gives us the pre-eternal glory, which He Himself has from the Father. In the world to come, he wants to see us there, where he himself is on the right hand of the Father. At first, there is no sense of mystery, no questioning about the vision of light. Everything within and without is illumined. Only the light is seen. Mind and heart are silent, filled with blessed wonder before God. I will see you, and your heart shall rejoice. And in that day ye shall ask me nothing, John 16, 22-23. The Incarnation made it possible for mankind to set foot on the path of, to the Father by persevering in the spirit of Christ's commandments in every circumstance of earthly life. The love for Christ that comes from keeping of these commandments renders prayer intense, ardent, leading to such thirsting for the Lord that the Spirit travels beyond the confines of this world to be absorbed in the one God. This kind of prayer makes the soul kin with the spirit of truth, and when she knows this spirit, she will recognize him by his Savior, as St. Siloan expressed it, and surrender herself to him. And conversely, the soul will spontaneously, intuitively reject numerous phantom truths capable of attracting the inexperienced mind and the unenlightened heart. Divine light reveals the true nature of tempting spirits, and so delivers us from the foolish attractions of the opposition. The light which appears to man when he believes in Christ testifies to his divinity. Our spirit accepts the Lord Jesus as immutable truth, authentically holy, and this eternal light begets testimony within us identical with the teaching of Christ. 
In this light, we contemplate the Father. We apprehend this light as the Holy Spirit. In it, we see Christ as the only begotten Son of the Father. In it, we perceive the oneness of the three. Praying to this God, we live the one being of the three persons. But we apprehend and relate to this oneness variously. I approach the Father in one fashion. I pray otherwise to the Holy Spirit. I turn to Christ in a different manner. And a special spiritual feeling is associated with each that in no way detracts from their oneness of being. With each hypostasis of the Holy Trinity, we have, to a certain extent, a differing relationship. Closest of all, we know that the Lord Jesus, we know the Lord Jesus through his incarnation, his becoming man, and through him we are led to first being, which is true God, the Trinity, one substance, and undivided. Sometimes contemplation of divine light makes one totally oblivious to anything physical. In prayer, the spirit enters the sphere of mental light and one loses all sense of both the outside world and one's own body. The spirit melts into such tenderness in this vision that it cannot tell what is happening to it. And afterwards, one does not know whether one was in the body or out of the body. More frequently, however, one continues to be aware of one's material surroundings and then eyes open may see two lights, the physical and the divine. This is what the fathers mean when they speak of beholding the uncreated light with the natural eye. Yes, two lights are seen, but not in the same manner. The uncreated light differs from natural light, which acts on the optic nerves and sets off the psycho-psychological process of vision without affecting us spiritually. The opposite happens with the divine light, which always communicates an especial feeling of grace, of which heart and mind, even the body, are conscious. By nature invisible, inexplicably, it becomes visible. This manifestation, however, is less usual than spiritual states of grace, possibly intense, unaccompanied by any vision of light. The first of the modes of contemplation here described is superior to the second since participation in the divine life, contact with unoriginate being, is experienced more profoundly than in the second. But how is it explained that during the actual vision, one can discern no activity in the mind, no notions, no images? And yet on emerging from this state, both mind and heart are conscious of being filled with new knowledge. The heart, through the action in it of the grace of divine love, more nearly apprehends the mysteries which excel any intellectual perception. Are we to call this the resurrection of the soul or the breath of eternity embracing us? Maybe it is both. In our earthly existence, before we taste of death, Matthew 16, 28, our closest contact with the divine occurs through the shining on us of the uncreated light. When this light comes in strength, we cannot help recognizing that it is the Lord, the Almighty, the creator of all that exists. At the moment of the vision, man is enlightened by the Holy Spirit. As St. Siloan said, quote, In the Holy Spirit is the Lord made known, and the Holy Spirit pervades the whole being, soul, mind, and body. The action of this light cannot pass unnoticed, unrecognized. Being the eternal energy of God, this light penetrates us with his power, and we become without beginning. 
not through our origin, but by the gift of grace. Life without beginning is communicated to us. And there's no limit to the outpouring of the Father's love. Man becomes identical with God, the same by content, not by primordial self-being. God will eternally be God for the reasonable being. Christ, after his resurrection, said to Mary Magdalene, Go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my Father and your Father, and to my God and your God. John twenty seventeen. St. Gregory the Theologian offers a masterly interpretation of the Lord's words, to my Father, by essence, before all time, to your Father, by the gift of the Father's love, to my God, through the humanity that I took upon me, not in the literal sense. And this is the eternal situation. For the man Christ, the Father continues to be God, for us likewise. But as the plentitude of divine life is communicated to the man Christ, Theanthropos, so is the same plentitude communicated to those who are saved in Christ. This follows from the prayer prayed by the Lord. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Neither pray I for these, but for them also, which shall believe on me through their word that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me, and the glory which thou gavest me I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them, and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me, and hast loved them, as thou hast loved me. Father, I will that they also, whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me. Reference John chapter 17, verses 16 to 17, and verses 20 to 24. And all mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. John seventeen ten. The light proceeding from the Father of lights relates these words to us, makes them belong to us, makes them ours within us. The light places them in the very core of our being. In this light is our communion with him, our personal communion, face to face, person to person. The initial action of a small degree of this light is, if one may measure a divine gift, is recognized by a profound sensation of the living God in our heart and mind but it is not yet like the coming of the kingdom in strength, not like manifest personal contact with him. It is essential to emphasize that divine light is always and without fail linked with a sense of grace of which our whole being is aware. In this connection, blessed Saint Siloan both said and wrote, quote, if thou seest light, and that is all, to wit feel no sense of grace, then it comes from the enemy and must be rejected. Intellection of the inscrutability of the divine self-being does not necessarily require a high degree of spiritual knowledge. Intellection of the inscrutability of the divine self-being. Many, while still lacking experience of the uncreated light, 
that which may be known of God existentially, have perceived the unfathomableness of the divinity through the normal process of philosophical contemplation. Philosophical contemplation cannot be equated with the experience accorded to Moses. Quote, and Moses drew near into the thick darkness where God was, Exodus 20:21. 20, Ontologically, it rates much lower, although it does denote the intellect's potential for genuine contemplation, but not in isolation from the heart, the center of man's personalism. I have already pointed out more than once that after intense concentration, the intellect may perceive it itself as light, faint, but light. And if the intellect regards itself as the highest manifestation of man, the nous, that is, the eye of the soul, and without the love of the heart, devotes itself to its abstract ascent to absolute being. In certain cases, it arrives at Luciferianism with its deadly cold light and merciless contempt for the sufferings of millions. Our mind is created in the image and after the likeness of the first mind, God. Light is natural to it since it was made in the image of him who is light unoriginate. When in its ascetic contemplation of the mysteries of unoriginate being, the mind crosses the threshold of time and space and for us ourselves becomes like light, then man stands in danger of mistaking this natural light of the created mind for the uncreated, the divine. In such states, an aberration, the human mind forges mystical theories, which however lead not to genuine eternity, but to that attainable by man as a created being. Supernatural communion with God is quite a different matter. God is not the the world of pure abstract ideas. He is living. He is the most concrete personal being. This feature of the personal absolute is the most important for many who find themselves halted by the insoluble contradictions between artificially constructed hypothetical doctrines. Every dilemma is resolved by following Christ in toto, Christ the God-man Theanthropos. This is the only way to arrive at true knowledge of genuine being. When our enlightened mind is stilled in blissful awe, contemplating the creation of God's identical with the unoriginate himself. The Christian dwelling existentially in the sphere of uncreated light may still not understand what this light is. To the ignorant, speculation on its nature may seem superfluous, academic, lacking any real significance for our salvation. Not so with ascetic strivers, who concentrate all their efforts on repentance. And how could anyone seeking true knowledge of God evade the question, what is it or who is it that appears to him? Knowledge of God, existential knowledge, is in inevitably united to the coming of God within man, an event by its nature indescribably grandiose. The heart has no doubts. Nevertheless, the manifestation and strength of light so far transcends our fallen nature that no believer in Christ must trust himself without confirmation either from the scriptures or the works of the Holy Fathers. And moreover, even the scriptures are not enough for a conclusive judgment, since almost everyone interprets them variously. It is absolutely necessary to have confirmation from someone of the same faith as ours 
who has been found worthy of divine visitation before us. Therefore, we need these three factors. One, the New Testament. Two, the writings of the holy ascetics of our church. And three, a live witness. If there is no fellow witness, the virtuous soul cries to God, Have mercy upon me, corrupt in soul and body. Let me not fall away from thy truth to set foot on another alien path. Tempt me not to vainglory, in the words that the canticle puts into the mouth of the Most Holy Virgin, when the Archangel Gabriel announces to her that she shall give birth to the Son of God. The appearance of uncreated light is less rare than one might suppose. Many ascetics, in a transport of repentance, were found worthy of this gift, without having had the temerity to let their mind dwell on it and perceive who this is. They are content with the action of light on the soul, reconciliation with God, priceless comfort, a sense of eternity, the vanquishing of death. Not all, even among the greatest, are capable of expressing with equal force what has happened to them. St. Peter, for instance, who was consumed with a burning love of Christ and worked miracles like the Lord himself, is less eloquent in his epistles than the apostles John and Paul. Peter, who witnessed the transfiguration on Mount Tabor, knew that through Christ, in Christ, he was united with God in eternity. That exceeding great and precious promises are given unto us, that by these we might be partakers of the divine nature. 2 Peter 1.4 And, quote, There is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. Acts 4.12 Peter has many other splendid sayings, but it is John and Paul, though they performed fewer visible miracles, who have given us richer material in their teaching, opening up for us limitless horizons of knowledge of God. St. Paul was better equipped, learning is often an advantage here, than the other apostles to describe the experiences accorded to him, and found a whole range of profound words in which to speak of the mysteries revealed to him. My thoughts naturally often return to my Father in God, the blessed St. Siloan. Existentially, this humble man lived in a state which only very few throughout the whole history of the church were found worthy of. But in his writing, it is obvious that he lacks words to describe the great blessings poured down on him. The church, however, reveres alike both those who in few words, but in abundance of miracles and nobility of spirit, founded her, and those who served the same ideal with the gift of teaching. When he who is God manifests himself in the phenomenon of uncreated light, man intuitively loses all desire to philosophize about the transpersonal absolute. Existential, not abstract, knowledge of God is in no way confined to the intellect alone. A fusion, a communion of the whole man with the act of divine being is imperative. This is achieved in love. When Jesus asked a certain lawyer how he interpreted the law, the answer came, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy strength, and with all thy mind. Luke 10.27 This is our nociology. The commandment calls upon us to love. It follows, therefore, that love is not something already given to us. Love must be acquired by the ascetic act of our free will. 
The Lord's appeal is first of all to the heart, the spiritual center of the persona. The mind, reason, is one of the energies of the human personality. Love is born in the heart through faith, and the mind is thus confronted with a new inner factor. The flame of this love draws the mind wholly into the heart, where it merges into one with the heart and contemplates being in the light of divine love. We become whole. We are healed. There is no more difficult, more painful spiritual endeavor than the struggle for the triumph of the love of Christ, first in ourselves, then in the whole world. In point of fact, this love is not of the earth, but of heaven. In it lies the meaning of the being of God himself, who is love, who gave us the commandment to love. The spiritual ascent into the kingdom of uncreated divine love demands prolonged ascetic striving, which may be likened to trying to climb a steep mountain or the agonizing struggle of gifted artists in all branches of art, or the long years of weary effort to acquire scientific knowledge, and so on. And since in most instances people willingly accept every possible sacrifice for the sake of obtaining short-lived material benefits or privileged social status, we should not be surprised at the still greater efforts required to achieve the eternal treasures of the kingdom of God. As Christ said, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent take it by force. Matthew eleven twelve.